Cars on Call is a different car podcast. Two car guy physicians join noted automotive authority, Adams Hudson, to discuss car topics you won't find anywhere else. I'm Steve Schutz, and I've been publishing new car reviews for almost 30 years. Stefan Moran is a trauma surgeon who has published articles in the automotive safety literature and operated on countless car crash victims. And Adams Hudson is a now retired successful businessman who has bought, sold, and owned over a hundred top shelf enthusiast cars. Welcome to Cars on Call. Welcome to Cars on Call. I am uh, automotive journalist and gastroenterologist Steve Schutz. I'm here with trauma surgeon Stefan Moran. Uh, we always have a trauma surgeon segment because we got a trauma surgeon, so he talks about safety, car safety. It's great. Uh, automotive collector, consultant, expert Adams Hudson is here. Hey guys, how's it going, Steve? Hello. We got what? a lot to we got a lot to cover, and this is going to be a very interesting. We're going to start with a Hyundai. We're going to move to safety, and then we're going to talk. Uh, Volkswagen. This is the 50th year of the Volkswagen Golf, and we've got our. Can it be? Goodness. Yeah. <laughs> None I of had us to were... check its birth certificate, but yep, you're right. None of us were born, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, there's a lot to talk about with the Golf because it's a great car. And uh, we're going to end with Stefan had this idea about different price collector cars. We've been going up the ladder. Uh, what would we pick if we could get any collector car with a budget? And the budget is now up to 200000 so we'll end with that. But uh, we're going to start with something new, and that is the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. And everybody was like, guys, you remember this. Everyone was shocked. It was about three, four, or five years, I guess about four years ago. The duo from Hyundai Kia, and of course, they're the same company, just different brands. Uh, the duo of the uh, Kia Telluride and the Hyundai Palisade. And those were kind of uh, Toyota Highlander, Honda Pilot competitors and uh, and Ford Explorer too. And they came on the scene. Everyone's like, holy crap. These are like seriously best in class cars. Uh, we didn't expect this. Well, now it's like the world has absorbed that and digested it and said, all right, Hyundai and Kia are doing a great job. They make legitimate vehicles that can compete with Honda and Toyota. Well, now it's step two, which this is essentially a slightly larger RAV4 competitor. It's the Santa Fe. And it looks unbelievably cool. I mean, this looks like a Land Rover, only better. It's got that kind of chunky look of the of the, uh, of the Land Rover. It's kind of like in between the Defender and the Discovery. And it's got all kinds of really cool design cues. And it looks good on the inside. I'll just give some specs. $35,000 to start. Three rows of seats if you want them. It's got and they lay two. flat too. Second, third row lay flat. Exactly. A la uh, Nash Rambler. <laughs> yeah. Ah, that's right. I forgot about that. <laughs> and uh, it's got a 2.5 liter inline four cylinder turbo engine, and a uh, hybrid is also available. So that's kind of the spec, guys. I mean, am I the only one that's excited about this? You're not, but oh. Stefan's the only one that would immediately notice the, the fold-down seats that turn into a <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> The teenagers are going to be borrowing this. Teenage boys are going to be borrowing the mom's cars and their dad's car. But no, I mean, it's cool. It's got that second and third row seat. It's got a hybrid available. It has a ultraviolet light sterilization compartment above the glove box. And it's, it's about two inches longer, four inches taller but it weighs 1,000 pounds more than the previous Santa Fe. Oh, so, yeah, yeah lots of glut there. Does that mean but, more safety, Stefan? Well, a lot more features, safety. There's a lot more to have second and third row seats that fold down in there. And then I'm sure they had to beef it up as well, but it, that, it gained a lot of weight. I mean, a lot more electronics. That stuff adds up quickly. Um, I, I spec'd mine it, out, and it came out to 48 grand. I guess having a light that you can... Uh, do small operations under is probably not not exactly on every other car. Can anybody mention to me what the you what are you trying to sterilize under that thing? I mean, I know that this is a post-COVID world, but why would you have a UV light in the you throw yourself you at a restaurant, you have your cell phone, you put it on the table, you're like, hey, this is gross, I want to clean it. Or you or you hand it to your kid in the back seat and he's you know it's getting snot all over it and you just throw it in the glove box <laughs> and it's sterile. Well, you got to admit it's pretty innovative, and it does stand out in the optional. It list. does. I mean, and the, you look the pictures here. The interior. I mean, it's just. I mean, we talked about how Hyundai is on a roll, 
And they really are. This this car is absolutely gorgeous. And it's really cool. The taillights light up with the H pattern. You know, it's square, boxy, but it, that maximizes the interior space. You know, this is the design keys right taken right from Land Rover. But hey, at this price segment, they're going to sell a ton of these. And um, it's more it's a more usable size than the Palisades as well. Um, I think it's fabulous. And once again, Hyundai's got another home run. I mean, they just... Like Steve, I think you said it, Steve, they are the Acura of this generation. I mean, they're just, they're coming in with just amazing product, one after the other. And yeah, they don't let up. No, they're they're really uh, being aggressive. They're, they're gobbling market share. Absolutely, uh, like you said, Stefan, on a roll. And by the way, am I the only one that looks at this and thinks, wow, what kind of genesis are they going to build on this? Holy mackerel, yes, exactly. Yeah. If they can make it look better than that, they will accomplish quite a feat. And, you know, Steph mentioned the H taillights, and you can see on the front end the H headlights, which, of course, gives some design uniformity. And even the grill, it's hard to see the entire grill, but it makes an elongated H. You can see that, the, you know, the, the one side of it here. And normally I really sort of intensely dislike when people overdo their logo sort of branding identity like Ford Taurus second gen with ovals everywhere. There were just ovals on top of ovals and everything was a Ford oval and it was too much. And with the first gen McLaren, uh, the MC 12, whatever the other letters and numbers that went with that, you know, where they had the logo sculpted into the grill, the, the McLaren flash was sculpted into the grill. It just looked odd. It was forced. This car is not forced. It looks beautiful. It is a very tidy design. The The sculpting is not too much. I'm, I'm growing a little bit tired of the floating C, C and D pillar, but this car pulls it off perfectly. Uh, there's not a line out of place. And we talked, you know, and I think I, I'll go ahead and throw myself under the bus here. I was, I was just so exhausted with everybody's interpretation of an SUV profile other than, as Stefan mentioned, uh, how, how good-looking uh, Range Rover Land Rover seems to keep doing it, this one is in that design world to me, just as handsome. Yeah. All right. Three thumbs up. Uh, safety, Stefan. Trauma surgeon, Stefan. What do you got for our safety today? All That's right. Awesome. Well, you know, we all, this last week or so, we've all seen that video of the 7,000-pound Rivian, or maybe you didn't see it, but the news was, they crashed a Rivian through a regular guardrail. And this was the not, by the way, this was not Rivian. It was it was a university, and uh, this was like a legit test. Oh, it's a totally legit test. Complete. This is yeah done by university. Legit test. Crash testing. They, but it's a seven thousand. It's a seven thousand pound Rivian, and the thing just smashed through the guardrail. Like the guardrail wasn't even there. Then it hit the concrete. Of course, pieces flew off the car. Excuse me. Pieces flew off the car but it survived it amazingly well. Um, they did a similar test on this with the Tesla Model 3 a couple of years ago, which weighs 4,000 pounds. And it lifted the guardrail and went underneath it before it hit the concrete. So, um, you know, what this is telling us, a couple things. One is mass is always going to win when two objects collide um, because the mass of the Rivian, you know, kinetic energy is one half mv squared. So it's directly proportional to the mass. So a large vehicle like this is going to destroy this guardrail, um, as expected, as well as the barrier. So I want to talk a little bit about guardrails. And we got to remember that we see guardrails everywhere we drive, but they're the last line of defense for when you lose control, okay? It's because you have lost control of the vehicle that you're hitting the guardrail. Or you got hit and you hit the guardrail, but basically you violated the physics and dynamics of your vehicle and you lost control. So you're hoping now that the road you're on is safe and has a guardrail that will protect you. Well, the, you know, there's an interesting history behind the um, guardrail. Basically, it's a W-shaped piece of metal attached to a post. Well, initially, they wanted strong posts. So basically, the idea was the post wouldn't move. You'd hit the guardrail and kind of bounce off the guardrail. And in New York, they did it in the 60s, they did a study, and it was, of course, sedans at the time. And then a soft pole is kind of like a wooden pole that would break away. Well, they found that a strong pole had about a 3.3% fatalities associated with it and 15.8% hospitalizations, while weak post crashes were 1.9% fatalities. 
fatal and with 10.8% hospitalization. So think of NASCAR safer barrier. You actually want to hit a barrier that has some deformability to it. Um, so, you know, rather than hitting the concrete wall at, at Talladega, you'd rather hit hit the safer barrier, which compresses with the foam, allows you to write it down. So they went back to using the soft pole. And what they did was they basically have a hard pole. Then there's a piece of wood between the pole and the guardrail. And that wood acts like the absorbing material. We got to think about the 90s. We started to see more SUVs and trucks. All vehicles are getting bigger, including passenger vehicles, SUVs and trucks. So they increased the weight of the design that the impact could take. Um, and the way they do it is they thought they initially they increased the weight up to 4,410 4, pounds, up to 5,000 pounds for heavy vehicles. And they the regular size sedans were 1,800 to 2,400 pounds. And they also raised the center of gravity to 20 inches on the guardrail. So they, not only they made the guardrails withstand more force against them, but they also raised the height because vehicles have gotten higher as well as bigger. And the other thing is our vehicles continue to change, but now the design philosophy behind the guardrail is like a safer barrier. It's designed to keep you moving down the guardrail and to keep you upright rather than flipping and rolling over and going underneath it. And the idea is not to bring you to a slam stop where the guardrail deforms and then you hit the next hard post in front and come to a complete stop. Well, vehicles keep changing. So in 2014, they raised the height to 31 inches. You know, so the question is, you know, the Rivian makes the guardrail and the concrete barrier look absolutely worthless. Well, at a seventh, you've got, you've, now you've got a guardrail designed for up to about 5,000 pounds. It's now taking a vehicle that's got a higher center of gravity that weighs 7,000 pounds, which is two-fifths or 20% more than it was initially designed for. Um, of course, it's not going to perform for which it was designed. And, and infrastructures, they're not going to go around the country and change every guardrail. Just not going to happen. This is only going to be a new construction to get you new barriers. You've gotten a small country road, that guardrail could be 20 years old, 30 years old, 40 years old. Um, so you're not going to have the latest guardrail. And then the one thing I do want to talk about, we've all, you know, driving down the interstate, you see these wires that are along the meat, you know, right along your shoulder. And those are prevent crossovers. And um, I want to show you a study, you know, the, so the question is, you know, it looks like it's going to just cut your car in half when you go through it. But the question becomes, do these crossover barriers actually work and save lives? So I'm going to bring up a picture here of a graph. Oh, there it is. So if you look at, they study between 1980 and 2017 that continuous improvements in engineering design have reduced by 47% the number of fatalities resulting from vehicles crashing in the guardrails. So yes, they do work, even though they're not completely keeping up with the change in the automotive landscape in terms of size of vehicles guardrails do work as well as the crossover so 47 percent decrease in fatalities from guardrail crashes is huge um comparing 1980 to 2017 now you gotta also say the vehicles are probably a lot safer as well so it's a combination of factors but we do know that they do work even though they're not keeping up with the vehicles and Definitely not keeping up with BEVs and their weights of 7,000 to 10,000 pounds, especially in the SUV and truck end of it. Um, and out of curiosity, I looked up some weights, you know, so the, the Tesla Model 3, Tesla Model 3 comes in at 4,000 pounds, which is 700 pounds more than your average Accord. And that weighs 300 pounds more than my bullet Mustang. And I was, I was not impressed how heavy my Mustang actually is for, <laughs> I'm for the size of it. Yeah, I was, I mean, I was like, holy mackerel, my Mustang weighs 3,600, 700 pounds. Jeez. But um, interesting stuff. And it just kind of made me think about guardrails um, with the advent. And, you know, the concrete barriers were also designed for vehicles. And unfortunately, I was on call today in Huntsville when the school bus went over the Jersey barrier on the overpass and crash fell to the ground. And we had several die that day. So they're there as last case defense against out-of-control vehicles and the majority of time they work well. well stefan you know as usual you bring up lots and lots of questions and, and comments and data that it just doesn't occur to a person in a normal day 
uh, one of which, and just, just for the sake of clarity, listeners or viewers, when he's talking about a safer barrier, that's not just an adjective. That's an acronym for help me steal and foam energy reduction or something. That, yeah, exactly. It might have been a lucky guess. But, but nonetheless, that, that's it, basically it's, it's adding an external crumple zone to your car. Stefan, my, my question, and I'll attempt to pose it uh, compactly, as the standards increase for the guardrails to accept greater weight and or vehicle height, does it now almost unfairly disadvantage those with lower vehicles and less weight? Because if the energy absorption for the big fat vehicle is one set of numbers and data, then it's going to be incredibly rigid for the much lighter car. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Like, so tool around on my little Miata or a Toyota Corolla, it's going to make a, yes, hopefully they won't, you know, if it's interesting, you go to Europe and you're on the Audubon or the auto route in France, their guardrails will be two and three high. So they'll have them stacked up. So there's just oh. not one guardrail. They'll have two to three to cover smaller vehicles as well as the larger vehicles here in america we typically just have one guardrail and i know like in my miata i would clearly go under a new guardrail i mean my vehicle would just go right underneath it it's just too small a vehicle but you know it's the idea is that they're designing and they're continuing to change the guardrail to match the general population of vehicles on the road i mean eventually the you know the tiny toyota crawlers from the 70s just go off you know they, they they go out of service after i don't know how long what the typical age of the vehicle on our road in america is currently but they 12, died 12 years old the average 12 years so, yeah. 12 years old gotten old so you know yeah so they're when they do these design and implementation changes they're you know they're not designed for a 55 chevy or a 60 honda Accord, but um you know for the what generally is considered the vehicles on the road mm-hmm well, it's gonna. We're gonna follow this story. It's a very dramatic video, Stefan. Where this oh, it's unbelievable. Flies it's insane. <laughs> I mean, it is, it is. Talk about a, a knife through butter. Yes, it could just cut through it like it was nothing standing there. You know, it kind of looked like you know when I when I saw it, and we can move on. But if you take a look at that video, it gives the entire appearance of something they would do for a made-for-TV movie like with maybe not the best sort of setup to show somebody busting through a sort of a fake or weak guardrail. But then you go, no, that's a real guardrail. In other words, it's not for the drama of breaking through. It actually was supposed to have stopped it. Right. Yeah, it's amazing. All right, car spotting. I did the car spotting this time, and this was really cool because it leads into what I alluded to earlier, which is, this is the 50th birthday of the Volkswagen Golf, uh, otherwise known as the Rabbit. So uh, this is not the car I saw. I saw actually it was a red one, but it doesn't matter. This is the, it's the first generation Volkswagen Golf, and they were selling them here since you know 1975 or so. They sold the Volkswagen Rabbit here, and um, 83 and 84 they decided, hey, let's bring the GTI over. Now, the GTI was launched in Europe in 1976. Don't ask me why they waited so long, but they finally, they brought it over almost sheepishly, like, yeah, and it went completely crazy. People loved this car. Everyone went crazy about it, uh, for it, and I bought one. It was my first, the first thing I did, like, not the first thing I did, but basically within a week of finding out that the Air Force was going to give me a scholarship to go to medical school, I bought one. And that's it right there. It was at 84. And uh, I love this car. Let me give you some specs because we were talking about the, 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 the Hyundai Santa Fe could blow the doors off of a GTI. It cost about $8,000. It had a 1.8 liter inline four-cylinder engine with 110 horsepower and it did zero to 60 in just about 10 seconds. But it had a five-speed manual. It was so light. It weighed about 2,200 pounds. It was so light. I love this car. So I just saw one recently. And I'm like, it just made me so happy. Every time I just I, every time I got in this damn car, I had fun. I loved it. Loved, loved, loved this car. I had it for four years. And uh, that's a picture of me outside of my apartment in Albany, New York, where I was going to medical school. 
You so, know, I desperately um, wish you were wearing a lot more embarrassing clothes and or hairstyle. <laughs> but you look kind of you look kind of okay there, see? I was I was, I was ready pretty, to count on that vintage photo. It's pretty low key. So uh, anyway, that's what I spotted, and, and it just made me happy because again, I have great great memories of this car, and uh, boy, I wish I still had one. There's so much fun. I probably would get tired because it's so slow, but it's great. You know, I saw these when I was in Europe. My parents were living there at the time, and over there it was the Golf, and it was so, I mean, I love the GTI. And then it came to America, and it was the Rabbit, and I just I just hated the American name because I knew it as the Golf. I knew it as the Golf. I'd seen them in Europe. I mean, this hatchback two-door hot hatch segment, um, but I hated the American name. My brother had a Rabbit. I actually bought a Honda Accord instead of a GTI, and the reason was was I was making car payments. And I also knew that the Honda would be cheaper for me to maintain um, because it was a stretch to buy the Honda anyway. But I got the Honda Accord LX hatchback. Instead hey, of before, before Adam's ways there, because I want to hear about collectability out of it. But this was a warm hatch because the hot hatch was the Golf in Europe. This <laughs> engine, warm about, it was the lukewarm hatch because the one in Europe had about 50% more power. So this was underpowered mm -hmm. compared to the European GTI. But again, it was so much fun. But Adams, it's kind of collectible, don't you think? I think it has a lot of collectible features. You know, uh, it, it it strikes a chord with with people of the exact age that are looking for a fun little collector car to to reclaim their youth. And I did not like the rabbit name either. However, they did multiply like rabbits, ha ha, having sold one point one million in the first eighteen months. They offered wow. it. So. Mm. Uh, but, you know, let, let, let's don't fret too bad for VW because they had had the bug previous to this. And just like, look at the picture of that. That's a 74 model. That's like the first year. Think about a bug. Think about the VW Beetle that preceded this. They sold 21.5 million bugs, but it was almost becoming a kind of a caricature of itself by the end of the whole uh, bug era. It was it was flirting with irrelevance. You know, other cars were coming out at the time, but you know, when the, when the rabbit golf, which is the, the appropriate name, when the, when the golf was launched, uh, they didn't just say, Hey, let's warm over the bug. I mean, they went radical, you know, Giorgetto Giugiaro, which is a fun name to say, uh, the famed Italian designer, designer of lots of cars. You love low slung silhouette cars, Maserati Bora for one. Uh, was designed, uh, uh, tasked with designing this car. And he went for, you know, simplicity and uh, aerodynamics. And they put the motor instead of in the back and air-cooled and the front and water-cooled. And there you go. You've got the, uh, the Golf. And it was a great car. And Steve's car at the time, even though 110 horsepower, you know, sports cars at that time barely had 110 horsepower, and that was like cool to have. And a, and a, and a nice GTI would embarrass most sports cars, uh, cars that lived under the moniker sports car, but it had, actually had a back seat. It had a little bit of um, luggage space. I remember, you know, when you put this, this topic out there, Steve, I remember in 1983, a friend of mine, I was still in school, a friend of mine called me up and said, hey, man, I just bought a new car. I want to bring it over and show it to you. And I said, what is it? He said, I'm not going to tell you, but I'm going to show mm. you. Come over there. And I said, wow. So this is my friend who was not a car guy, by the way, but he had had a Dodge Swinger 340, which we gave him unshirted heck about because mm. it was beige with the beige vinyl top and a beige bench in seat interior. And I thought, what is he going to bring over here that I'm going to be embarrassed to, to not be able to say I'm happy for him. He drives up in a black GTI. Oh, and it, it, it's, it's like he'd had a personality transplant. <laughs> it was a fabulous looking car. I'd never seen one before. It had like punched out fenders. And I think you may have a, image of, of one well there you go there's i think that's the yeah there you go that's the german ad for one with the crazy tartan interior and the recaro seats i think that's a second gen there but regardless the gti was a go, go back to the interior for a sec because it had famously had the tartan seats but uh also the 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 shifter the shift knob which was true for my car which was 84 it was it was had dimples like a golf ball which was cool that's very cool. Just that they would think of doing that. 
and they borrowed the steering wheel from the Scirocco, the later Scirocco. Just it was a little bit sportier, a little bit more GT like all the way around. And it was just a dang good car, you know, and I, they sold the fire out of the things. And Steph, you'd shown that Mark II. That was the refreshed one. And this the just Mark three. Wait, that's a three? Yeah. Okay. Well, I have that labeled wrong. They were, um, th this kind of shows you the whole um, design philosophy and the longstanding engineering arc of the uh, kind of the German mindset, but certainly uh, VW is that they, they had already picked 10 years out what the golf was going to grow up into. And the Gen 2 was the evolution car. Oh, that's right. The GTI really was a Gen 2 for us. That's right. It was a Gen 1 in the U.S. shores, but it was a Gen 2 for, for Europeans. That's exactly right. So this is the latter version of 3. And they were selling in the millions every single generation. So when you start compounding that, you know, they ended up selling over 20 million of, of this version total. And if you go to the next one, I think all GTIs probably have their fans and detractors. And Steve, what gen are we looking at here? Is that a? That's two. That okay. Okay. That's the two. Okay. Somebody punched, uh, put a BBS wheels on that, which later became a factory option. I don't know if it was an option on this particular car of that year. But the, but the fans, you know, just really jumped on these. The VW legions who had been hiding in the in 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 the weeds when the when the bug was out came out in mass support of this, along with a whole new generation of people who really liked them. And by the time that the uh, the Gen three car came out, uh, the design philosophy for the for Volkswagen had become safety. And so they wanted us. One of the reasons a person would not buy a small car at the time was they're not safe. And they decided to start putting better rollover standards ahead of the DOT crash standards, better crash protection front and rear, better side entry uh, intrusion all the way around to make their small car compete with mid-sized cars and larger for safety. And by the time the, uh, the the three rolled around, they had they had already sold fifteen million golfs and almost five million of that generation. And if we go on up to a Gen Four, keep keep scrolling in there. The Gen Four would have been nineteen ninety seven to two. Oh, this is when th th yeah, hang on those th those there. They had had a longer product cycle earlier, and uh, probably seven, eight years as a product cycle. Well, Volkswagen was getting a dose of what Japan was delivering to us, which is shorter product cycles. And so if you're keeping count at home, they went from like eight years to seven years to six years to five years in the product cycle. Well, and they were massively improving them all during that product cycle. And the motor being shown right here is the... Guys, I don't know about you, but if there's a Hall of Fame for just great engines, the VR6 is mm -hmm. going to be in there, probably one spot below uh, the BMW inline six for me. It's I just heard, I just I just heard something about this on a podcast that they did the VR. It's a very narrow angle. It's almost a, it's almost inline, really. It's so close. I think yeah. it's 15 degrees yeah, it's or something. 15 degrees, but, yes. Yeah, but, 15 degrees, yeah. Yep. But they can make it shorter than an inline. So the only reason they did it was they could make it shorter. It's beautiful packaging solution. And if you're not looking at a at a photo, if you're just a listen only, you just need to go look at a VR6. And it doesn't it doesn't matter if you care anything about motors or mechanical bits. But it's just a, a marvel of engineering, like Steve said. It's basically the the, the footprint of a four cylinder, but it's within a it's a V6, right. and it's so daggum tight. And it's just fantastic. And it really, it only lasted for the uh, golf during this particular generation. And, you know, that was, it, it, they had the, the sportiest golf, which would, would have been the R32, R32 for 3.2 liter. That, that vehicle was speed limited to 155 miles an hour. Who knows what it would have done with a little longer gearing and lifting of the governor's. 
but the, it's just unbelievable. And you think about a VW Beetle, just a generation before that, couldn't have done that if you dropped it out of an airplane. And even the first Golf couldn't have. But, you know, the, the first 90 horsepower standard or 110 of the GTI, and here you've got 170 horsepower narrow angle V6 just cranking up the revs and just really a fantastic car. And sort of like we're talking about uh, Hyundai earlier, VW did not let up. So we've got a next generation, what they called class braking. And VW, it's always these short words, something easy to latch onto. Probably in German, it's a much longer word. But class braking to them for this generation was we now want to bring luxury car attributes to our small car. And so they did this by panoramic sunroofs, uh, direct injection uh, on, on their motors, uh, wh which, by the way, they were the first to do direct injection and turbocharging together before Porsche, by the way. And I don't know about you guys, but one of the best production wheels I've ever seen in my life is on this vehicle. I love that thing. Yeah, that's a good that's a great I mean, It sort of like takes the BMW throwing yeah. star one step farther. I, I like those wheels. And so it's a, it's a little bit bigger car. It's a heavier car. It's a more luxurious car. And as you would imagine, it's a little bit more pricey car. But they have they were basically undercutting BMWs in the 3 Series with similar performance, similar amenities, similar options, but a lower price tag. But they were getting bigger. They were getting heavier. And then you look at the, this is a VW family shot of a, a golf outing, if you will, of every generation. And you can see how it got bigger, but with this last version, they purposely decide, decided we are going to decontent and deconstruct, but keep the car very strong uh, by reducing its weight. We talked about weight earlier with the crash barrier standards and such as that and how EVs exceed those. VW said we're going to make just as strong a car but in a lighter overall package. And what a great thing. I don't think any of us would disagree that that's probably the move all of automotive manufacturing needs to take because it's 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 less of a war in case of a uh, in case of a crash. It is uh, less content that needs to be recycled once you're decided you're through with it. It's less waste overall. It is easier to handle, easier to control. It is uh, more fuel efficient. On and on, the, the the benefits of lightness are you know legendary. And here we are with now. 50 years of golfs behind us. I, you know, I, I love my first generation, but it was really too small and, and, and kind of primitive. And I, you know, I've driven all the generations except for the eight and I, I love them all. Uh, the, the three, which I call three, it's actually four, but it's, it's kind of, you know, the three was really 2.2. Anyway, that was kind of boring, but the rest, they really sparkled it up a lot more, performance and the luxury. So what I think is interesting, and um, I love this evolution. It's a, it, this is one of the most important cars ever made, but uh, Stefan, do you remember this? A guy, the guy that, you know, he's a friend of yours, Bertel Schmidt with, uh, he used to be an editor of the truth about cars and he wrote a really interesting piece. And Adams, I don't know what you, what you think about this take. I learned, and we all were taught just what you said. They got, you know, Volkswagen knew the golf was done. Or the, I'm sorry, the Beetle, the Beetle was done. They had to come up with something new. And they looked at the Mini and they looked at the Japanese cars. They said, you know, we got to do front wheel drive, front engine. And then they 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 did a survey of people and demo, demographics and stuff. And they said, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna come out with this thing. Or we're gonna call it the Golf. And we they got a great designer and they did it. Well, what Bertel Schmidt said was, well, first of all, Guigaro was not that well-known back then. He was kind of a young dude, and he was doing this as a side hustle, and he did it. And he did it for Volkswagen because he wasn't doing it for Volkswagen. He's doing it for some dudes at Volkswagen that were, like, desperate to do something kind of anti-corporate. And the corporate corporation was saying, no, we got to do something with these air-cooled engines. And they weren't interested in the Golf. They weren't interested in anything like it. And they finally were so desperate, like, screw it. Let's just try it because nothing else that we've been doing 
worked. So basically the Skunk Works team made the golf against what their bosses told them to do. And then the bosses said, fine, we'll try your stupid car. And against, <laughs> and it worked. <laughs> Stefan, isn't that your memory of that article? I thought yeah, it was absolutely. fascinating. That's, that's, yeah, that's what Bertel wrote. How about that, Adams? Yeah, go look that <laughs> up. If you're interested, yeah, Bertel Schmidt, The Truth About Cars, The Volkswagen Golf, The True Story. It's it's a great read. But, you know, think about it. I mean, all the hot hatches that came after this, especially Europe, the 205, the Renault Clios, the, the R5. Peugeot 205. I'm sorry, the Peugeot 205. Thank you. You know, the R5, the R5 Turbo. But the other thing, you know, in this vr6 engine that they designed this very narrow angle basically it's kind of like overlapping cylinder squeeze at 15 degrees from that came the w12 yeah. you know and the you know which in the bentley's yeah. and and the bugattis and so a lot has come from the golf and they really changed they changed that automotive industry with that car that everybody had to have a two-door hot hatch and then the four valve my favorite of all just because of the way in french it was a 1987 GTI that had the 16 valve engine. Yes. It had a really cool sticker on the back. I think I found a sticker on it. Let me, um, yeah, here it is. Let me show this. Um, stop that share, bring this one up. But it was the way the French pronounced it. And um, here's this great badge on the back corner. But it says, whoops, says Supop. I just love that. JT says Supop. I mean, that just sounds so cool. Uh, that was my favorite. That's like our American phrase of soup up. Soup up. So, yeah. <laughs> well, that's, you know, it's interesting that the history that you guys pointed out, and no, I did not read that. And that's cool to know that the background was really the, the skunk works, the sort of the enthusiasts. I mean, that that's where lots of cars are birthed in, in the group of enthusiasts who are not the accountants. They're, they're, they're not the people in marketing. They're the people who understand car people. Uh, you know, it's famously the Dodge Viper was strictly a result of the skunk works. I mean, that Dodge scarcely knew it was even going on except for a few people at the top. And I guess the, the, the golf and or what subsequently became the GTI was really part of that. Uh, do, do either of you think that there's going to be one emergent collectible of that group? I kind of do. Uh, of the whole generation of all of them. One the year. I think any of the R's. Yeah. Any of the golf R's. I think the R's are all really, really, but the GTIs are kind of, they were nice and a little bit pedestrian. There's a ton of them, but the R's, I think, from my mind, would be the ones that would be collectible. But I'm no yeah. expert. I agree. So, to, to me, and Steve, I mean, you're you're our resident BMW guy and flag waver because you you own one and you follow them. To me, the the, the VR6 is like the E92 V8 BMW, having had the only one blessed with two extra cylinders for one generation only. Agree? That's right. Okay. Yep. Yeah, but I, I also agree with Stefan. You know, the later generations, which would be five and six, uh, the R32s, uh, and then the more recent Rs. But the R32, I think the Rs were just so special in there. The aficionados mm -hmm. love them. So I think it's going to be the Rs that really are are loved, but the VR6, yeah, they didn't make that many of them. So, all right, let's move on to collector cars. Um, because and Stefan, go ahead and introduce this because it was your idea, and I just I love it, it's so much fun. Yeah, we started off with 25k, 50k, you sold up 100k, and I guess we just hit the lottery now, and <laughs> we've moved up to we, we moved up to the 200,000. This really this goes into the category of the dream. I mean, we all have dream cars. Cars we covet, hopefully no longer women you covet after you're married. But we, um, you know, th these are things that are just unobtainium, and two hundred thousand dollar cars unobtainium to me. Um, just fiscally could never do it. But I still think about it. If I had, I love to think about if I had two hundred grand, what would I buy with two hundred grand? I think you guys already know what I would buy. But no idea. Uh, well, I couldn't get scratching my head. It's scratching you. <laughs> I really could. So I could not get a real Cobra for 200 grand, but I could get this, a 67 Shelby Mustang GT 500 four speed. So I just, I mean, I, the 67 fastbacks are my favorite of all the Mustangs. Yep. And, and of course to have a Shelby GT 500, there's very, there's just not a lot of these. 
And I know this sold for 195000 on April of 23. I bet you this car actually today would sell for about 225 to 230 So It's amazing uh, that that's gone up. Uh, Steph, now that's not, I don't know my Ford colors great, but that's not Highland green. Is that some made up sort of green that wasn't originally on a GT500? What is that? No, they just call it, um, I'm trying to look, they call it green paint with, it was a, um, it's the original color on this car. Dark moss green. There it is. Dark moss green. Dark moss green. Okay. Yeah. That's a, yep. because I think Highland is a little bit dirty or a little bit mixed up with some black. What, yeah, a, my, what a fantastic <laughs> looking car. I mean, everything about it, uh, the, the wheels, the stripes, I mean, the, the stance. I mean, that car is built. And that, the, you know, the wheels are almost of the Brock Yates sunburst type pattern. You know, they've got that little bit of a sunburst. I just I mean, to me, this, this is the coolest of the cool Mustangs. <laughs> and um, I would just, you know, it's got the 428 um, police interceptor in it. And yeah, if I had 200 K, this, this would be it, man. I think Bobby Crumpley would be proud of that. One of our former guests, he, this would probably be his pick as well. Uh, tell me what that would have been if it was a, an original '67 Ford GT500. Like, what would it, what would the uh, price tag be? You mean back then or now? Oh, that oh oh. oh when you said you could not get an original Shelby, you mean I mean, a, I'm Cobra? I meant a Cobra. Cobra. I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. I, I meant a Cobra. Yeah, I yeah I could not get an original Shelby Cobra in the two hundred thousand dollar price range. Got it. I could get a I'm sorry, a continuation cover, but no, but the Shelby, yeah, I'm sorry, I couldn't get an original Shelby. That would be a original Shelby Cobra, which is, you know, like the car. An eminently more usable car. And I know that we said this, you know, a couple episodes back, we were talking about the Aston Martin V8, and I've got a little bit of Eurocentricity in me. So when I look at this car, this one to me looks the most like the Aston Martin. And I mean that in the most glowing comparison. Yeah. Yeah, I see that. You're right. Yeah, it looks a lot like it. I, I think it's a great choice. My question, Stefan, is why not the GT350? Hmm. Um, because you can't get one for $200,000. <laughs> that's kind of reason. Yeah, that's that. You, that. you can't get a GT350 for $200,000. You mean yeah. it's uh, – now, why is the small block more than the big block? Because they were the original, the first, the first ones. They were the first cars that he made. So they did the not GT350s. Take... And they were really just race cars. They did not make simultaneously a small and big block car? No. Okay, no, gotcha. No. gotcha. So the original were GT350s, and they were really were for racing, and they did sell them for street. But no, those cars are on, Those cars are even worth more than the GT. There were, there were a lot more made of the 67s than the, than the, than, than the GT350s, that's why. And I'm probably about to get embarrassed here, but and I don't remember what the motor compartment looked like. Uh, this particular car, is this the only year that they had the, uh, the dual quads? Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I am not a aficionado, but this one, I think this one's, I can't tell from the engine. If this is a dual quad. This is a single, this That's, is a dual quad. Is it? Yeah, not it's just the original one. Well, it's, yep. uh, it's oh, there it is. Yeah, there it is. Dual. Okay. All right. Yep, I dual. See. Yep. 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 Probably not the best carburation. I mean, things can be over. over no, one Holly, one Holly carburetor is, a, is enough of a pain in the ass that I would not want two of them. Cheers. I mean, <laughs> I agree with you. I mean, I was always changing the jets on mine. When I, my Cobra had a Holly and it was, you know, you're better off just taking it off, sending it to somebody because I bought a rebuild kit on, from my Holly on my original, the Cobra that I had. I thought I'd rebuilt it. Well, it's amazing. It's kind of like putting together a barbecue grill that you end up with, you end up with parts that are supposed to be somewhere and you have no idea where. <laughs> Well, uh, yeah, no thanks. All right, I'll do I'll do mine, and then we'll go on to Adams because I want to finish with Adams because it's more interesting than mine. But mine is almost predictable, but I don't think it's maybe not predictable. And it's the it's a two thousand one Ferrari four five eight, and I picked that that's, from that's, our resident non Ferrari fan. I know, impressed. I know, and basically, I know, but you know, I actually you're the Jay Leno of this group. I know, but deep down, deep down, I really do love them. And I, this is one I would love. I'd get it in blue, just like this. It's a normally aspirated, uh, wonderful Ferrari V8. It doesn't have a manual, but it's okay because this car is so great. And the F1 transmission, by the time they got to the 2000s, they had all the bugs worked out and actually worked really well. 
So this car, beautiful sound. I think it's beautiful to look at. By the way, give me a modern era Ferrari that, that the design is aged as well as a 458. I don't think any of them have aged this well. So that's my pick. And and Adams, you weigh in because you're the real Ferrari guy. But this would be my choice for $200,000. I think you outpicked my choice. Honestly, like just seeing this up here, I'm like, dang it. I should have come up with that. I believe, and I'm probably going to get corrected, that that's blue Pozzi, P-O-Z-Z-I, if that's the right color. And the inside would be a Cuyo, which almost no one can spell and fewer can pronounce it. But regardless, it's a very tasteful pick. And Steve, kudos on multiple levels. Yes, as a modern Ferrari, I think it's one of the best looking ones. of. A, to me, it's the last great looking one. And I'm yeah. probably now yes. offending all the people who just went out and put deposits on a new one. And I don't, there's a few of the new ones and I won't name them by name that I'm thinking who in the world let that through the design committee where the 458 was just universally like, oh my Lord, look how great that is. And when you think about what it took the place of, this car is like from another planet from the 430. I mean, you look at a 430 next to this and you're like, oh, there had to be two or three generations between them. Nope, this car seceded the 430 and it's just incredible last normally aspirated car i believe your investment is safe yeah i think so too all right what's what's yours man <laughs> if you have well now i feel like we're taking a step back <laughs> mine is one kind of more on there there it is oh be still my heart going pitter patter the bmw z8 which i've mentioned on this show before how much i'm a big big fan you know, they're not to me, you know, it, you guys could have, have a difference of opinion, but nobody did retro styling any better than the, than the Z8. You know, I think Henrik Fisker or Henrik Fisker did as good a job reinterpreting the BMW 507 as anybody has ever done of any automobile. Go on record as having said that. And like this car is shown with its top on in most of the photos. I would never take the top off. It's that good. Mm-hmm. 400 horsepower M V8. They have a little bit of teething troubles with way too many LEDs and a few sophisticated bits and pieces that they thought were modern for the time that are harder to sort of keep keep uh, functioning. But just look at that thing. And I'm telling you right now. How about those chrome side mirrors? That's cool. It's yeah. super cool. That is so retro, but it's, it works perfect on that black. I love that. I just noticed that. I, I d- there's nothing bad I can say about it. Now, the interior occasionally gets some negative marks because they stuffed everything in the middle in sort of a weird kind of first-generation mini fashion, like they were expecting you to maybe put the, the steering wheel on the right or the left, so they crammed all the instruments in the middle. I don't care. I just think it's a great car. Uh, BMW has promised, and I presume they're being true to that promise, 50 years of parts availability. Salute BMW for sort of seeing that people might want to keep their their classic Z8, now classic Z8, on the road for that long. Uh, I believe some cars are going to suffer in the future because nobody's making parts for them. Especially all their computer parts, Lord. Exactly, man. That's the one. That's the thing. It's like who's going to have these crazy little modules for every car out there twenty years from now? But that's my pick. Two hundred grand. Very cool. I I still stick with my Shelby though. These are two fantastic choices. Um, I just for I just have I don't know if I could drive a Ferrari. I I think I could drive a GT. I like the GTs a lot more than the mid-engine. I'm just not a big mid-engine car guy. Um, I like a big bonnet out front with a honker motor. I don't want it behind me. I want to see it in front of me. But the Z8 has such design styling cues. It's going to look great in 100 years. Hmm. You know, it was was interesting. When it first came out, you're kind of like, they didn't sell that well. No, Um, they didn't. Yeah, It was amazing. I think they were just too far ahead of their time. But do you think also maybe because... There were too many other retro designs that had done it poorly. Well, they like were expensive. The Ford Thunderbird and the Z was expensive. Yes, right. You know, I, I don't know if you're posing that to the group or just. I mean, hey, I'm posing now. I'm asking. What do you think? 
No, I mean, I, I I feel like it just, I don't think people knew quite what to make of it. It's like, uh, is that a specialty hand-built car? Why does it look like it's 50 years old, even though it's brand new? And yeah, they did a very fine job of it. And I think there were maybe 120 to 140 grand when they came out, which was a lot. A lot of money, yeah. A whole lot. And they were slow to sell, but right now, you know, you're looking at, and actually, I probably stretched the price range a little bit. I don't, even when you showed that stuff, I'm I'm not the best proofreader. I don't remember what it said it sold for. And that one's oh, got that handling kit right there. Like if you see that that bar that goes in front of the motor, right? That, mm -hmm. that black bar is what they call a handling kit, which was a factory reissue because these cars being aluminum framed, if they twisted the frame at all, your insurance man would tell you your car had been totaled. Oh, and that was a bad day. So it would collapse. It would, collapse and or deform those shock towers so bmw's quote handling kit they did not want to call it an anti-deformity kit. <laughs> <laughs> so for about 2500 bucks you put that thing on there and another little reinforcement under the shocks but um That's that awesome. was good to run flat tires too by the way but anyway i love that car and steve you're the bmw dude where, where does this does this hold a place in your heart uh, it, it always kind of bothered me that number one, it was so expensive, and number two, it basically is just a rebodied M5, um, the E39 M5. So, uh, you know, I'm not crazy about it from that standpoint. However, and at the time when they came out, I thought they were kind of, I wasn't crazy about the styling. Now, I think it's classic. It's beautiful. It's really aged well. Uh, everything about it is great. So now I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm all about it. I think all three of our choices are good. And by the way, here's what's cool about them. We could take the three of us, anywhere, get these three cars and go on a two-day trip, and all three car, all three of these cars would do great on that trip. That's a great point, and I do notice we all picked V8s. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely is right. It's, it's yeah. The greatest the V the V8 is just the greatest internal combustion engine. You know, I mean, we all like the straight six, but in terms of power though and usability and torque there's nothing like a, a honking v8 and oh, let's let that... leave out the, the auditory effects they all sound fabulous yeah let's let that be the final word because we're done we're out of time but i like that the, the v8 is the best engine ever made i like that thanks that's a, the final word so close this out all right thank you for watching on youtube or listening on spotify and apple podcast remember to like listen subscribe hit that button Leave some comments, and uh, we look forward to coming back at you next week.